Welcome to the podcast for North Decatur Presbyterian Church. We are a Presbyterian USA congregation located in Decatur, Georgia. You can find out more information about the church, our service to the community, and our great education programs for children, youth, and adults at ndpc.org. And you can follow us on Facebook. If you're in the Atlanta area, we hope you'll come and join us in person. That's it. On to this week's scripture and sermon. We remain committed once a month throughout the year to read the stories of women in the scriptures. Last month, Beth read the story of Hagar and preached on that text. And today, we read a story about a woman named Rizpah. How many of you have ever heard of Rizpah's name? Raise your hand. All right, if you have, you are ordained, okay? I just uh, noticed that. I'm guessing a lot of you aren't spending a ton of time in 2 Samuel. So before Jan reads the story, I'm going to give you a little bit of background about what's happening in this text. This is the story of the rise of David, the king. And as many of you know, David was widely seen as the greatest king in Israel. He was the king whom God chose for that role and blessed him and anointed him for that role. But many of you may also remember that David was not the first king of Israel. Who was? Saul, a man named Saul, was the first one who was chosen. But through some strange events that if you spend too long looking at them closely, your head will start spinning around, Saul was removed from the throne. So Saul was taken off the throne and David was put on, and that, was, uh, that set off a series of events, a conflict, bloodshed, enmity between the house of Saul and the house of David. So in today's story, at this end of 2 Samuel, David is on the throne and he's consolidating his power. And part of the way he's doing that is trying to eliminate any of the heirs of Saul who might have any claim to the throne. However, at the moment we pick up this story, there's also a famine in the land. And so David's own authority, his own rule is being threatened by the precarity of life in the famine. So that's where we pick up, beginning 2 Samuel 21. This translation of the scripture is from the message. There was a famine in David's time. It went on three long years. David went to God seeking the reason. God said, it is because there is blood on Saul and his house from the time he massacred the Gibeonites. So David called the Gibeonites together and he addressed them. What can I do for you? How can I compensate you so that you will bless this land and its people? 
The Gibeonites told the king, Saul, the one who tried to get rid of us, who schemed to wipe us off the map, let seven of his sons be handed over to us to be executed, hanged before God at Gibeah, the holy mountain. David agreed. I will hand them over to you. King David selected Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons that Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah, had borne to Saul, and the five sons that Saul's daughter Merav had borne to Adriel, the son of Bazili. David turned them over to the Gibeonites, who lynched them on the mountain before God. All seven died together. Rizpah, daughter of Ayah, took rough burlap and spread it out for herself on a rock. From the beginning of the harvest until the heavy rains started, six months, she kept the birds away from the dead bodies by day and kept the wild animals away by night. David was told what Rizpah had done. He then went and retrieved the remains of Saul and Jonathan, for neither had been properly buried. He gathered up their remains and brought them together with the bodies of the seven who had just been lynched. The bodies were taken back to the land of Benjamin and given a respectful burial in the tomb of Kish, Saul's father. From then on, God responded to Israel's prayers for the land. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. There are so many stories in the Bible that we never, ever read because they are hard. There's a case to be made that we don't come to church to read stories that shock us because the world is enough already. But can it not also be true that seeing our world's exact pain mirrored in the Holy Scripture can be powerful and maybe even healing. I think Rizpah's story is like that. Who is Rizpah? Rizpah is the low-status wife. That's not my term, that's the Scripture's term. Rizpah is the low-status wife of the disgraced, now-deceased King Saul. 
She is described earlier in the book of Samuel as an object in men's struggle for power. In this passage, we meet Rizpah again, a second time, and again, when we meet her, she is a victim. Her beloved sons, perhaps the joy of her life, Certainly the only source of her life's security are hanged. They are the sons of that same disgraced king. Rizpah's sons' bodies are dishonored by King David and by the Gibeonites against specific religious requirements. The bodies are dishonored so as to cause humiliation even beyond the torture. Their bodies are left to rot in the sun and to be scavenged by animals. And Rizpah has no way to stop it. She has no power to resist the violence being done to her and to her beloveds. What can she do? What she does do is something very strange, maybe irrational, desperate, and also very loving. She takes her place next to the bodies of the grown boys that she nursed when they were infants. She lays burlap down on the rocks. And for six months, day and night, she keeps vigil there. Day and night, weeping perhaps, raging, beating back the birds and the beasts who come. How dare you to feed themselves on her children's flesh? You will not touch them. You can hear her voice. Can you imagine? So what should we say about Rizpah? Where is God in her story? For one thing, Rizpah's story illustrates a proverb from Africa that states, when elephants fight, it is the grass that suffers. Why do we pay attention to the elephants? When we learn history, we are always biased toward the great men, Saul and David and Solomon and Abraham and Moses and Joshua. The scripture tempts us into thinking that God works primarily through men in power. That isn't true. God's will and God's way, God's desire, God's insistence that we human beings choose dignity and loving kindness is not found often or even ever in the stories of great men. God is not in the elephants. God is in the grass. 
the mere fact that our scriptures kept some of these stories, stories of Hagar and Hannah and Rizpah and Mary, suggests to me that we, the people of the book, have always known to look and listen for God in people living in the quiet corners of the world. The scriptures do go on and on about David. But the very same scriptures have always preserved at the margin this story of Rizpah. Whether we care to look at it and read it or not, it's always been there. There she is, weeping and protesting, chastising David refusing to relinquish her dignity or the honor of her children. No one, she cries, no child of God deserves this ever. The clearest parallel to Rizpah about whom you may know is this woman, Mamie Till. In the summer of 1955, Mamie sent her only boy. This is Emmett, right? It still makes me cry, right? She sent him from Chicago to visit relatives in Mississippi. And no one can say what happened for sure, but they say that Emmett whistled at a white woman. And then white racists kidnapped him in the night and beat his body beyond recognition and, and shot him in the head, and they tied him to a 75-pound fan and they sunk him in the Tallahatchie River. His body was recovered and sent back to Chicago for the funeral. And his mother looked at him, right? She looked at what they did to her baby. And she did something that is inconceivable. She had an open casket at the funeral because she wanted everyone to see what those monsters had done. Man. Eight years ago, on August 9th, 2014, around noontime, there was an altercation between a policeman and another teenager in the suburb of St. Louis, and the young man was shot six times by the officer, and his body slumped forward in the street, and he died there face down. Now, I don't know how you came to understand the story of Michael Brown and what happened to him that day, whether you believe that he was responsible for his own death. People said that for the longest time about Emmett Till. But what is beyond interpretation, what is fact, is that Michael Brown's 18-year-old body lay face down in the street for four hours. No official had the decency or the respect to remove his body for four hours in the blazing hot Missouri sun. It was that profound indignity that led me and so many others to understand exactly how callous our culture is to certain bodies. It's still hard to find on the internet pictures of Michael Brown's body in the street. We censor it. We don't want to admit that it happened. 
that we let him lay there and that his mother stood there powerless to get the police or the coroner to do anything for her son. Michael Brown's death led people across the country to protest about police violence and also that so many communities just like Ferguson, Missouri, some here in our own community have been abandoned and our citizens dishonored and dehumanized. What I hope you all will hear this morning in Rizpah's story is that people of faith have to grieve and weep and rage and bear witness against the human cost of violence. Violence is part of our world. It always has been. Sometimes the violence is random. But much of the time, the violence that we see is legitimate. It is violence wielded by the state for the purpose of controlling people. Emmett Till's murder was state-sponsored violence, right? Like the state never tried to bring his murderers to justice. Lynching was tacitly endorsed in Mississippi and in Georgia. Michael Brown's murder was state violence. An officer responding with lethal force to the perception of a threat. But as you can see with Emmett Till, as you can see with Michael Brown, and as you can see in Rizpah's own story, violence goes beyond the violent action itself. Violence is undergirded by a culture of profound disrespect for human bodies and human beings. King David refused to honor his religious obligation to those bodies. Mississippi refused to enforce its own laws. In America, we abandon entire communities like Ferguson, Missouri, and devalue our neighbors who live there. That is violence. And somebody has to bear witness to it, to the human cost. Somebody has to sit like Rizpah with the victims and grieve and rage and cry out, how dare you do this to my child, to this child of God. What does this look like for us, people of North Decatur? We will pray today for victims of gun violence, as we have done for years on the third Sunday, but what would it look like for you to bear witness like Rizpah? In Durham, North Carolina, there's an organization called the Religious Coalition for Nonviolent Durham. It was founded in 1992 as an organization uh, that does advocacy to develop state and local legislation against violence, specifically gun violence. Sounds like something we could get behind, amen? They were entirely unsuccessful. The North Carolina legislature eventually passed a bill telling municipalities they couldn't regulate guns. So the coalition found it had nothing left to do. 
One night, not long after, at a meeting, a woman asked out loud why the coalition, who were all members of faith communities, why didn't they hold vigils for the women and men who had been murdered? Nobody had an answer. In all of their advocacy on behalf of victims, the coalition had never met the people most affected by gun violence. They were humbled. That night they changed the way their organization works. Their first vigil was held in 1997. They are often held at the very site of the homicide. These vigils are holy spaces that acknowledge the dignity and the worth of the victim. The vigils help to soothe the trauma of the loss. And they consecrate the blessed memories of the victims. Families in these vigils felt seen. One mother said she felt relief to know that others cared about her and did not judge her or her son. The vigil was like a prayer that went down to my soul, she said. Another mother said the vigil for her son was like the period at the end of a long sentence. Our world is full of violence. What can you do about it? Can you stop it? Maybe. I mean, maybe through our combined efforts, we can bend the unjust systems toward justice. But what I hope you hear today is that there is every bit as much spiritual power in weeping with those who weep. Grief preserves the dignity and the humanity of the one who was lost. One last story. In 2010, a woman visited a natural history museum in Bristol, England. You can imagine yourself walking through a natural history museum like Fernbank, and there, behind a glass display case, was a taxidermized animal. It was a Tasmanian tiger, the last of which had gone extinct in 1936. She writes about this experience. Here before me was this beautiful, mysterious, lost creature locked in a glass case. It struck me suddenly as unbearably dignified. And I had this sudden vision of smashing the glass, lifting the body out, carrying the tiger out into the fields, stroking its body, speaking to it, washing it with my tears, and burying it by a river so that it could return to the earth. She wondered why we have no rituals, no liturgies, no catharsis for the pain of the inconceivable loss of species extinction. Now we do. You may not know about it, but on November 30th, every year, people gather all across the world to mark the Remembrance Day for Lost Species. This is a picture of one of those vigils remembering the passenger pigeon. 
if we can hold on to our grief, if we can bear witness, we will not be desensitized and we will keep our humanity. Six months. Six months Rizpa sat there. Six months, day and night. I cannot conceive it. I have to believe that somewhere along the way, other people noticed her. And that they came and they sat with her and they kept her company. Maybe they brought her food. Maybe they kept watch, keeping the birds and the beasts away while she slept. Finally, David noticed. Finally, the elephant noticed what was happening in the grass. Let the church say, Amen.
So here we go. Out from this place and into the grass. Pay attention to what happens there. Draw alongside the people that you meet there. Bear witness there and grieve there when grieving is called for. But also proclaim the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the communion of God's Spirit, for it is with us everywhere we go. Let the people say, Amen.